the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. All right, let's get it underway on the Thursday. We've got J.R. Davis here from the Gilmore Group. Uh, Seth Mays is here from the Arkansas GOP. And uh, let's uh, do something uh, uh, with very local stuff to start off with. Uh, Seth, you've got a story that you made. Um, you, you released an Arkansas GOP statement on from the uh, chairman dealing with a candidate that is running for election this year, but yet uh, had been had been found not found guilty, but had 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 a, uh, a felony. Is that the way this goes? Can you give give us the, the the whole story on this? Sure. Good morning, Dave. Thanks as always for having us. So what we have is a little bit of a telenovela here in Arkansas in House District 12. That would encompass all of Phillips County. You had Chris Ritchie, a Democrat who uh, had filed to run. We had a Republican candidate who's a superintendent there of a school district, uh, David Tollett. Well, the Democrat, Chris Ritchie, moves out of the district, uh, which creates a issue for the Democrats. Obviously, they need a candidate and to fill a vacancy and nomination. You need a death, serious illness or moving out of the district. So he Chris Ritchie was no longer eligible for the ballot. They hold a special uh, convention of their county committee and nominate a man, uh, Jimmy Lee Wilson. Jimmy Lee Wilson is sort of a civil rights uh, attorney of the old uh, Democratic era. He was good friends with Bill Clinton, such good friends that when he committed a federal crime, uh, sort of embezzling uh, public funds for his personal use, Uh, Bill Clinton, on his last day in office, gave Jimmy Lee Wilson a pardon. And so what we come to now is that Jimmy Lee Wilson did serve in the Arkansas House in the past. Because of the way the term limits are, he could now, as some other legislators have, just a couple, uh, could come back and, and run again. And so he has decided to do that. Now, the obvious conflict is that he has committed a federal crime. Uh, it specifically rate, uh, related to monies and the public, which would qualify as an infamous crime and bar him from running. But his contention is he received a pardon, and it's not just his contention, it's also the Democratic Party of Arkansas's contention that his pardon absolves him of being labeled as convicted of an infamous crime, and he should be eligible And so to make that a a little bit shorter, what's happened in the last week is last Friday, we were in court, uh, Pulaski County Circuit Court, 
And we were in court because a random attorney in El Dorado, Caleb Baumgartner, had filed suit on behalf of a woman named Lisa Ramey, who is a who lives in Phillips County. The issue was he failed to prove that anywhere in his trial brief and really, again, in evidence that day that she is a qualified uh, voter in that district which, of course, calls into question the standing. So regardless of the obvious facts that Jimmy Wilson shouldn't be able to serve, uh, the attorney that initially filed suit, an attorney I would bring up that had previously worked for uh, the Depper firm, Annie Depper, being legal counsel for the Democrat Party of Arkansas. Uh, so the judge was not, not entirely happy with the way the case was. That El Dorado attorney had, had also failed to serve Jimmy Wilson, in addition to misspelling his client's name the first time that he filed. So the Republican Party of Arkansas, on behalf of our candidate, intervened into that lawsuit. So we were listed as what's known as an intervenor uh, in that lawsuit before Judge Alice Gray here in Pulaski County. Um, And so yesterday, finally, after sending one letter on Friday and another on Monday saying that she had reached a decision, Uh, She finally came down with that decision, which was to dismiss us with prejudice uh, from her court, meaning that from our next step is to appeal to the Supreme Court, which we will do. And hopefully we can get this other attorney who had (laughs) misspellings and and misfilings and and who we think is sort of a friendly lawsuit to purposely make a weak case. I don't don't know that we expected him to bumble it that much, uh, but hopefully we can get him off this case. And then we can just make the straightforward case that Jimmy Lee Wilson has been convicted of a federal crime. And though pardoned by Bill Clinton, it's still convi- a conviction of an infamous crime. Uh, and, and we're not even sure that the General Assembly would seat such a person, even if he was to somehow remain on the ballot uh, and win the vote. So that's that's the long and the short of it. OK, so have we ever had this situation where somebody is running for office, has been convicted, has been pardoned. I mean, a pardon doesn't just do away with a complete conviction, does it? Maybe jump in on this, Jr. If, if you've got a take on this as well. I mean, a conviction is a conviction no matter what, is it not? I'm going to let uh, let Seth handle this. He's the, he seems to be the encyclopedia on this. Uh, I'm, I'm okay. really not sure exactly how that works, Seth. Okay. Well, let's turn back yeah, over right. to Seth. Yeah, the, part, the, the pardon uh, does not absolve him uh, of being able to run because the issue is not that this is, you know, Jimmy Wilson made a lot of cases. His closing argument in court was he was trailing off in his closing arguments the judge reminded him to get to his closing, and he said, I feel like George Floyd, I can't breathe. He also said the only oh, reason brother. I'm here is because I'm black. If I was white, the Republican Party would not be doing this. His main argument was the old House of Representatives, of course, vast majority Democrat, over 70 members voted to seat him, so he should be seated now. Well, the Arkansas law changed in regards to infamous crimes. And so this isn't ex post facto. We're not challenging that he used to be a state representative. What we're challenging is he is running presently as a candidate. And the law presently would not allow that. So it, it's really one of those cases, Dave, that uh, it, it's all about characters. 
And Jimmy Lee Wilson is quite a character. He was the attorney in the famous Lakeview uh, case, which, of course, is how we how we do a lot of school funding still here in the state. And so he's got a lot of history uh, in, in the Democratic Party here and in Democratic politics, which is quite clear uh, that you've got some history if you can receive a pardon by Bill Clinton on his last day in office. All right. So. When do you expect to hear whether the Arkansas Supreme Court is willing to take this case or not? We've got 30 days um, to make that appeal. And, and what you do when you make an appeal to the Supreme Court is you have to find that the judge uh, misapplied the law. It just can't be, well, we disagree and wish that we had a, a, you know, a better resolution. You've got to find somewhere that the, that the court did not correctly apply the law. And we think we have some bases. Uh, for that, uh, first of all, we're in a, a pre-election trial here that was dismissed with prejudice, and I'm, I don't know the legal jargon that well, but the people that do assure me that you can't dismiss with prejudice an election matter uh, uh, like this. Another thing is at some point in the trial, our attorney, George Ritter, and you know George's wife, Belinda Harris Ritter, very well, but George Ritter, attorney for the Republican Party, was questioning Mr. Wilson, asked if he was convicted of a federal crime to which he said yes and then when we asked george did if he was pardoned uh mr wilson wanted to plead the fifth in a civil trial <laughs> <laughs> okay so the, the issue is he admits to being convicted of a federal crime but then he won't maintain that he was even pardoned he won't even accept that into the record as a fact so it he sort of made this defense based on i've got a pardon that should allow me to run but then he won't admit to the pardon so I, I think there's a couple different uh, uh, points in the application of the law that we can appeal this to the Supreme Court on. And, and feel, I wouldn't say confident, you never know in these situations. You have to watch them play out. But we feel there's certainly a basis for this to be overthrown. Well, it seems to me if somebody is guilty of a felony, even though they are given a, uh, you know, a, a commutation or whatever, for that crime, you still have committed the crime, so thus that should should be, uh, you know, a, a, a part that says that you cannot run for an, um, a, a state office. It just that just makes right. sense to me. Doesn't mean it doesn't make the t- the crime the crime go away. Just means that uh, you found, uh, you know, they said uh, we're, we're going to give you a pardon on. Was it a pardon or a commutation? It was a pardon. And the okay. other thing, Dave, is, you know, when you look at the Republican supermajority now and, and the way that Speaker Shepard and others have wanted to clean up the public image of government, given some scandals in the past, I'm not sure that the Arkansas House would want to seat Jimmy Wilson should he survive these legal challenges and be elected. I'm not sure what that does for public trust at our institutions to have somebody you know, convicted and then got a good old boy pardon on on the way out. Well, let, let's does this have any I mean, there, there's no uh, semblance of apples here. It's apples and oranges. But Mickey Gates would be a perfect example of this, of what you're talking about, is it not? Sure. And when Chairman Webb and Chairman Michael John Gray for the Democrats were in a TV appearance a couple of weeks ago, he brought up that point. Did the Democratic chairman that, well, in in regards to this issue, 
uh, you Republicans haven't haven't taken these these uh, issues seriously. You didn't do anything about Mickey Gates, which I, I don't know where he was living. But last I recalled, Mickey Gates was unseated by the House by a yes. Republican majority. So he, he might just be living in the past to the days where the Democrats wouldn't have done that. Uh, but the Republicans will do that for for public trust and in our state assembly. All right. So we'll keep our eye on this. I know that you'll have anything new that comes of this. So we appreciate you bringing us up to date on that. Now that we got our uh, small state issue out of the way, we'll come back and talk about some bigger issues like Black Lives Matter, want to defund the police. Uh, A new poll shows that 81 percent of African-Americans in the country want a strong police presence in our communities. Let's talk about that when we come back, guys. Seth Mays is with us from the Arkansas GOP. Also with us is uh, uh, J.R. Davis. He is with the uh, Gilmore Group. we got more to talk about when we return. All right, guys. A Gallup panel uh, conducted June 23rd to July 6th asked the respondents, would you rather the police spend more time the same amount of time or less time as they currently are spending in your area. Now, from everything you've seen reported on the national news, and we'll start with you, Jr. Here is the, the response they could give. Would you rather the police spend more time, same amount of time or less time uh, than they currently spend in your area? From what you've seen of the coverage of uh, George Floyd and and all the rest, how do you think these people responded? Well, you know, I read I read the uh, the poll. So. <laughs> yeah, I know you know uh, the I answer, think, but no, yeah, no. I mean, I think that would be what would it surprised me when I saw it. Uh, I don't know that it surprised me, but I think that you know the narrative that you see from the national media uh, would lead you to believe that. You know, uh, a majority of, of African Americans in this country, you know, do want to defund the police or something like that, right? And that's sort of the general idea that we get when we watch the news or read the paper and that sort of thing. But it's not, uh, you know, it's 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 uh, uh, really the complete opposite of that. That you know, eighty one percent of African Americans, um, you know, are either comfortable with the amount of time that police spend in their communities and their neighborhoods or they would actually like to see police uh, more present in, in their community which again I think was just a little bit uh, surprising uh, given what we're told by uh, the national news media so um, you know and I, and I do and personally I feel like that is the case because you know when you saw uh, you know uh, the you know once a uh, uh, Everything took place after George Floyd was killed up in Minneapolis. You know, there were interview after interview. Granted, this didn't drive the narrative, but I'm sure both you and Seth saw this, but the interview after interview of a black business owner, either in tears or just dismayed that their business had been, you know, destroyed, vandalized, you know, burnt to the ground, um, and, and literally telling whoever would listen that I've lost everything. I've lost everything. Uh, And and that's why I think it's so important to have that law enforcement presence in your community. Um, But, yes, reform's important, but I doubt very seriously uh, 
that those individuals wanted anything but more law enforcement presence on those days. Well, it seems to me, and Seth, you jump in here with me if, if you get something to say, that the African-American community, yes, they would like to see uh, the random stops and things of that nature, but that's reform. I think they understand just like every other American understands. And by the way, these figures uh, play out just as well with Hispanics and Asian Americans. <coughs> they uh, want police presence. They just don't want to feel like uh, they're being singled out. Is, is that kind of yeah, what you're uh, seeing this too, Seth? Yeah, absolutely. One note I'd point out just on methodology related to this poll, they were in the field Gallup at the end of June. So they were even, you know, when we look at these numbers, this isn't August, you know, first week of August numbers. These were this was even closer to the the time of unrest. And and one point on the defund the police is when you look at the the Chaz or the Chop or whatever is going on in Portland too, aside from Seattle, what is the first thing that these these people who whose main mission is defund the police, what is the, among the first things that they do? They they set up borders around their area because they don't want people coming in and, and infiltrating their sovereign territory, I guess you will. And then the next thing they do is establish a security force, a police force to, to keep a, a little bit of law and order and to not have all the streets burning. Some of the streets can be on fire, but of course we don't want them all to be on fire. So... Uh, no, I, I think most reasonable Americans of any stripe, color, or creed uh, value law enforcement. Like you said, that the random stops uh, are certainly things that we can move away from. Uh, but most people, by and large, respect police, are thankful for their service to the community. And, and as Gallup has shown, and, and other polls will support this, people for the most part, support what the police are doing. And by the time that you factor in those that want the police to do more or have more of a presence, you're nearing three-fourths of the population, uh, which I think says a lot about the men and women in law enforcement. The other part of this poll, which is very interesting, and again, as you said, this was taken closer to the George Floyd event, uh, as far as this goes, I mean, it's, we're not a long way away from it, like if we did it this last week. Uh, the survey found that 61% of uh, black Americans remain either very or somewhat confident that police would treat them with courtesy and respect. Uh, that compared to 91% of white Americans, 77% of Hispanics, 78 percent of asian uh, americans so there's some work to be done there there's no doubt i think we all understand that there's work to be done there but i think both of you would agree with me and we're down to a minute so we'll talk about this when we come back the african-american community is not ready to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, they want to see some kind of reform but a lot of what we're seeing happening in minneapolis Portland, Seattle, New York, Chicago, Detroit, and other areas are, are places that they've had uh, problems in the past. Uh, there are groups there that want to just cause problems. They're not looking for any kind of uh, solving those problems uh, except to say, hey, we don't need police officers any, anymore. Let's uh, 
fire the police officers and uh, replace them with social workers. We'll talk more about it when we come back. It's Dave Ellswick's show. we got the news for you coming up. Man, that came upon us quick. Uh, we'll come back and talk more about this, about African Americans and minorities and the police. 25 minutes till 7. We've been talking about uh, a uh, uh, poll that came out. Uh, this poll is a national poll and uh, from a respective polling group. And they looked at uh, how African Americans, Asian Americans, uh, Hispanic Americans, and white Americans viewed uh, police presence in their uh, neighborhoods. And 81% of black Americans uh, wanted either the police presence to stay the same or 18% want to see even more of a police presence in their area. Now, I was talking during the break with Seth and with uh, uh, JR, and we were talking about the differences between a national campaign, a state campaign, and then a local campaign. Both of these guys get involved in local politics all the time. What's the biggest difference that you're, you're dealing with? Uh, let's start, start with you, JR, since you work with the Gilmore Group. What's the biggest difference? So I just think it's, uh, you know, really it just depends on, like, if you're, if you're running a very local, local, local election, um, to me, sort of the biggest difference is, are the ways in which you touch the voter with your message. Okay. Um, so, so from let's start from you know the top of the top. You know, we, we saw the fundraising numbers from uh, the Biden campaign, the Trump campaign, the NCRNC, uh, and just gargantuan hauls uh, of money. We're talking lots you know, of money. Sixty plus million dollars for the Trump campaign. $140 million plus for uh, the Biden group. And so you can tell, you know, a lot of that is going to be the fact that they're going to go up on air uh, in, you know, 15 of these of the most competitive states from basically, um, I think they said after Labor Day through the election. I mean, just pumping millions and millions and millions of dollars on the air uh, in their messaging. Uh, and, and that messaging will go through, you're going to have focus groups, uh, you'll have message testing, polling, all of that sort of stuff that you do before you go up on the air uh, to make sure that those, that one, you're not just pumping millions of dollars into a, an ad that's not moving the needle, right? So you want to message test that, you want to get that from the focus groups, you want to feel good about it, confident about it, so that when you go up on there, you're actually... Uh, moving the voter uh, where you want them to go. So that's the national. So you'll see a lot of that, a lot of digital uh, content as well. Then you kind of go down to the state, uh, statewide races. And I think Arkansas is, uh, you know, different than other states. We're a smaller state, uh, more rural. Um, and so, you, again, TV is still king. Uh, you still want to be able to put uh, points. Um, on the board for uh, TV, make sure, again, you're message testing uh, your ad, that you're um, making sure that uh, what you're airing out there is, is in line with what most Arkansans uh, believe, feel, what the issue, what are the issues that they feel like are the most pressing issues in the state right now. Obviously, coronavirus is, is the top uh, pick at the moment, the economy. 
is a close second. Uh, and so then you want to figure out how do I me- how do we message that? How do we let them know that our candidate is the most experienced candidate, the one that can address these issues, that can lead um, from the front here? And so you- you'll see a lot of TV sitting in the statewide race. Um, I think uh, social media is, is is a big part of that equation. Um, maybe probably built up a little too much sometimes. Um, but still important. Uh, and then, you know, Dave, I mean, there's a lot when you talk about a statewide race, but then we start getting into these legislative races. That's where you kind of see the TV stuff phased out. You look at digital, especially right now, um, where people are stuck in their homes for the most part, or either they're at least stuck at their homes working because they haven't been able to return to work. Um, we've seen a huge uptick in basically, uh, you know, screen time, uh, as they call it, you know, just being on your phone and on your laptop and that sort of stuff uh, over the last four or five months, um, and a huge spike in Facebook users as well. So that's a big part of what we what we try to do in um, uh, legislative campaigns. But I leave the best for last in these legislative races, Dave. It's all about mail. Uh, mail is still the king. Mail is still how we can most effectively reach voters. Um, and especially if you saw back at the primary, uh, mail is so, so important. You want to be able to send, you know, uh, an introductory piece so you kind of introduce yourself to the voter. And then you want to follow that up with, you know, key endorsements, what you stand for, uh, you know, pro-life, Defender of the Second Amendment, uh, pro-law enforcement. I mean, those types of things. That's, you know, you may have about eight or nine seconds between the mailbox and the trash can. But that's kind of the the genius part about mail is that you want to design it in a way that's appealing to the eye, that's simple. You can get your message across quickly. And then you can discard it. That's it. But it's just, it's it's basically an eight-second ad from from your mailbox to your trash can. Um, But it's very, very effective. Uh, and then, of course, you've got door-to-door, which nobody can do right now. So that's just kind of a, a quick and probably not as quick as you'd like it. But <laughs> no, no, you, that was really... good. That's good. I, yeah. I think people need yeah. to understand how, it's, how, how it differs and why those things called push cards, why you see so many of them yeah. in, uh, in local races. Seth, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, everything Jr. said there was just spot on. And, hey, I assure you, there's nobody in the state than uh, the Gilmore group who is more of the, the leading voice on on these types of issues. Uh, I, I can speak a little to at the RNC what it looks like on the national perspective. It, even running a national campaign varies, of course, depending on the time of year. In the primary, everybody will receive a list of all of the day's events which will be at 710, Andrew Yang will participate in a, you know, off the record with the Des Moines Register. At 715, it will be coffee with Kamala in Vegas, in Nevada. And then, you know, later in the evening, Joe Biden will stop at these three cities in South Carolina. So it's very micro-targeted, a a national campaign, a presidential campaign in the primary to where all of your 20-some-odd opponents are, are physically at. And then you'll target in, of course, the media reporters in, in those areas and make uh, make sure that they have a statement from somebody from the regional political team to run in any of their local stories about said local Democratic event. And, of course, now, like JR said, when you're in a general election, now it's about million-dollar ad buys across the swing states and just flooding the airwaves 
in ways that obviously smaller campaigns can't do. You know, the, the Dave Ellswick for a dog catcher campaign isn't going to be making a $5 million TV ad buy. Dave's going to yeah. be sending out mailers, you know, and, and that's where you get the most bang for your buck, like JR said. Well, just look at it this way. If I'm running for dog catcher to make a million dollar buy on TV would be really rough. So I <laughs> probably, well, I I probably we, might look in, we, we might have to look into that campaign if uh, if Dave the dog catcher raises a million dollars for his election. Yeah, you won't wonder where that's it all right. came from. That's for sure. Yeah, all right, and, and real quick, the, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say, I mean, to, to uh, you know, some of the things that Seth mentioned there, um, I, I think that there's there's the biggest disconnect is when you run for office for the first time, and a lot of them are for, like, you know, these legislative races uh, across Arkansas. This idea that, you know, we have candidates all the time talking about maybe, you know, going up on air, putting a commercial together, an ad, that sort of thing. Uh, it's just, it's, it's interesting because you learn a lot when you run that first race, right? But you reach so many more people. I mean, if you have the money, great. Most of the time, you're not going to have the money. But you reach so many people in your district with with mail pieces, door to door, and and the digital aspect. And that's just it's just very different in one of those really uh, smaller local races. Uh, but it's just you know it's something that you have to learn uh, as you go. So a lot of people are not having to burn the shoe leather that they have in the past because. People don't want you coming to their door right now because of COVID-19. All right. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, we've got someone from the uh, uh, National Health Department going to join us and talk about COVID-19. We'll see what new numbers they have. And uh, I want to talk about how the Democrats have started to slowly pivot away from their really harsh leftist uh, jargon. We'll get to all of that in a few moments right now. We've got to pay for some bills. Let's do that. The Dave Ellswick Show. Seth Mays is on from Arkansas GOP. And J.R. Davis is on from the Gilmore Group. All right, special guests joining with us uh, this morning. So if you guys have questions, feel free to jump in with me. Brett Gowar is with us. He is from uh, Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C., Brett, welcome to the Dave Ellswick Show. I know our listener, my listeners are interested in what you have to say. Where are we with the, uh, the COVID-19? There's a lot of people say we're still in the same sp- spot we were before. I say that's BS. Uh, I say we can reopen the economy. A lot of people say we can't. What say you? Well, thank you for having me on. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. So, um Everybody on the task force, we're all emphasizing the serious spot that we're in because this is a serious virus and it spreads very, very quickly. But we are doing incredibly much better than we were a few weeks ago because of all the things that the American people and the Arkansans have done. Um, So our numbers of cases are down. Uh, and they're down substantially from our peak a couple weeks ago. Our number of hospitalizations are down. That's very, very good. In Arkansas, you've had about a seven-day downward trend, so you're moving in the right direction, not out of the woods yet. The last thing we see, unfortunately, is our is our deaths, because our deaths kind of lag four, six, eight weeks after the change. So we are still going to have a pretty rough week with deaths. But we are much better off, and it's because of four things. People are wearing a mask. They're avoiding crowds in indoor spaces. Um, They're washing their hands. 
uh, primarily is what they're doing. If you do those three things, if you wear a mask, watch your distance, and avoid uh, crowds, wash your hands, that's what's turning this around. You do not need to close down the economy. Okay, and that's important because uh, yesterday Wall Street had a great day. They really came on strong. Uh, when I checked in this morning, uh, it looked like that we were basically just sitting there and idling, nothing nothing going up, going down. But I'm with you. I think Americans are, are of the opinion that we can open a lot of these businesses and do a lot of things that we've done before. We, maybe, maybe we can't do SEC football the way we would like to, but we still should be able to play football. You know, you know um, I really want to emphasize this, is that uh, both all our models say that if you do those simple things, it's the equivalent of shutting down your economy, but you've got to really do it. You've got to wear the mask. You've got to avoid crowds. Got to avoid crowded indoor spaces. Got to wash your hands. Um, protect the elderly. But all our models say this, and this is what just exactly what happened in some of our hotspots, like Arizona. Arizona was on fire with new cases. They didn't close down. They kept the businesses open. Uh, Governor Ducey made sure all this happened. But they did those simple things, and they reversed this dramatically within a couple weeks. Same things we're seeing in Florida, Texas, uh, California. So these simple measures work. And, and but if people don't do those simple measures, then you're going to get into a situation that you're going to have to shut down. And nobody wants that because the consequences, not just to the economy, but to health are horrible if you have to shut down. People don't get cancer screenings. They don't get vaccinations. We know that mental illness is going up, suicide, substance use, all those things. So very important to keep us open. All right. uh, Seth or uh, JR, questions? Yeah, Brett, I've got a question for you. This is uh, JR. Basically, I think there's a lot of talk that, you know, a lot, I know that COVID is different from what we experienced with the flu. Um, but I think there's there's concern, at least from some folks that I've talked to, that while a vaccine is being worked on right now, you know, that the timeliness of it is that, you know, you have the COVID-19 that transitions to a new strain. Are we going to always sort of be behind on this? I mean, how, how do we get used to just basically living with this in our life? Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's it's a really good question because people know about the flu, and the flu is a very special case that it really mutates every year. And uh, every year you need a different flu shot. There are a few strains that go around, but it mutates very drastically. We do not see that with this coronavirus. There are very small mutations that that you're going to have with every virus, but it doesn't affect your ability to stay immune from it. So uh, as far as we know, if you get this and you get over it, uh, we're not seeing other cases. And the virus just isn't changing like the flu. So we, you know, you could never say 100% in medicine. We're learning more and more. But it looks like the, the, the vaccines that we are developing now that are going very, very well will give you uh, good immunity. Now, whether it lasts 10 years or 20 years or five years, we don't know that, but it's really going to be very effective at shutting off this virus. Um, we certainly uh, we have late-stage trials going on a number of vaccines. Nobody can tell you whether it's going to be December, January, November. It's going to go as long as it needs to to make sure the, the vaccine is safe and it's effective. Yeah. And when it's safe and effective, we'll have tens of millions of doses because we're manufacturing those at risk. So if something does work, we can get it to the American people. If it doesn't work, you flush a lot of vaccine down the toilet, not literally, but you have to get rid of it. But that's okay, because if it works, we want Americans to get it. All right. Uh, Hey, Seth, did you have have any questions? 
I do. Part of it was answered. Hey, Brett, first of all, thank you for your work there at HHS. Uh, my, my question was going to be, what is the timeline for a vaccine? We hear different things, but you sort of answered that. So I'll, I'll sort of reframe that. What stages yep. do we have left for the vaccine from where we are today? Well, there um, are uh, two vaccines, um, and there'll probably be another one very soon, that are in what's called phase three trials. That means they've undergone their preliminary safety trials. We know the right dose, and there really are testing people right now. Does it work? Every indication we have, it builds antibodies, and that's really good. But we're really testing in a population. Does it protect you from getting COVID, and how, how effective is it? And so there are at least two, and there are going to be more very soon, that are in this last stage of trials. And uh, each of them can enroll as many as 30,000 individuals, which is a lot of people in a vaccine trial. But it is possible that the data would be so compelling after 10,000 that the trial stopped. Um, you know, if, if it looks like 90% of the people are protected in the group that got vaccine and only 20% of the people are protected in the group that didn't, you're going to have an answer earlier. That's why we can't say exactly how long it's going to take. It depends on a lot of factors. But um, uh, the one thing I want to make sure everybody knows is that we're not cutting any corners on safety or effectiveness. What, we're, what we've done is we've got new technology that helps us speed through some of the processes like manufacturing, and then we're manufacturing everything at risk. But we're not, we're not skipping at all on the safety and effectiveness. It's going to have to be a safe and effective vaccine. Let me ask uh, a couple of closing questions here real sure. quickly with you, Brett. Uh, you're saying that you're not sure how long this vaccine will uh, continue. I, I think people need to understand this could be a whole lot like, uh, you know, uh, smallpox or something else. You might have to have a booster shot. Measles the same way. You might need another booster come, uh, you know, eight, ten years down the road. Nothing nothing wrong with that, to be honest uh, with right. you. And then... Uh, we're not going to, and this is something I keep seeing on my Facebook, I keep telling people ain't going to happen, and that is they're going to force you to take one of these shots. I don't see that happening. I've heard the president say countless times that you're not going to be required to get a vaccination. Uh, can you put people's minds to rest with that? Um, I have heard zero discussion uh, about forcing people to get vaccines. Um, th this has not been, you know, I'm at the White House every single day. I talk to the vice president every day. I'm, you know, in the room where it happens, and there's been no discussion about that whatsoever. Um, that's not the way we go about these things. I think most Americans are going to be very excited about getting the vaccine. Uh, we, do, we do want to get about 80% of Americans immune to this, whether they got it or get the vaccine, because once you get 80% immune, um, you shut it off. It's done, right? Because that's what's called herd immunity. But right. you got to get it to about that level. You know, in New York City, you probably had 25 or 30 percent of people already had had the, you know, had the virus. So you don't have to vaccinate that many to, to get to that level. So we don't need universal. We do need most people. And I think most people are going to do this. But there's been no discussion whatsoever about forcing people. That's not what we are in America. This is, this is not the Chinese Communist Party or anywhere else like this. This is America. We have our ways to do that. We respect individual freedom and autonomy always. So you're, you're, you, can, you can tell me that uh, Bill Gates isn't putting tracking uh, in, uh, material in the vaccine, right? <laughs> 
I don't know what Bill Gates is doing, but none of us are actually doing that. That's that's for sure. I, I would never try to vouch for what Bill Gates is doing. Okay. But uh, nobody, no no American company, nothing we're we're doing has anything like that. These are these are outstanding vaccines that uh, work very well in the early trials, and they should uh, be able to completely shut this off. Now, as you said, we don't know. It may last three, five, ten years, may last forever. But uh, the most important thing is to get the vaccine out and to shut this epidemic off, which it will uh, incredibly rapidly. All right. Brett Gowar, thank you so much. We appreciate what you're doing up there at uh, HHS. If you do see the vice president, tell him Dave Ellswick said hello. I knew him well in Indiana. So, uh, yeah, would be very nice uh, uh, for I you will. guys to come through and, 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 and drop, drop the mic on this. I want you to do it. Absolutely. I'll tell him hello for you, and thanks for having me on the show. Happy to be on any time. All right, Brett. Thank you very much. Thank we you. appreciate your time. Thanks, Brett. All right. We're down to one minute left, guys. You know what that means. It means i got to let you go. Uh, that was very interesting. Some good information. That was a great interview. Yeah. yeah it was it was that. Very good. You know, somebody said, just 10 minutes? And I said, you'll be surprised what we can get out in 10 minutes. All right. So yeah, HHS says better. that. Go ahead. These 10 minutes were better than second miles uh, 50. So I don't good. believe that. No, that's not true. <laughs> All right, guys, I'll see you next Thursday here on the Dave Ellswick Show. minutes after seven you've got about 54 minutes to get to work on time i'll keep that uh, time going for you so you know you need to hush in uh, and rush a little bit to get there on time our guest this half hour is going to be melanie meeker she's with the department uh, of uh, communication science and disorder she is the chair of that department at harding university now you know if you listen to my show that harding has been on quite often here in the last few months talking about their graduate degrees. Today we're going to talk about a new BA uh, that they're going to be uh, offering, and this is a BA in Speech Language Pathology uh, Assistant, and this is a first in Arkansas. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to Melanie. Melanie, uh, why don't you explain to us what communications and sciences and, and disorders is all about? You bet. Thanks for having me on this morning. Well, Communication Sciences and Disorders, or CSD, is actually the name of our typical traditional undergraduate degree. Students spend four years learning about how we learn to talk. If they're going to be speech pathologists or audiologists, they need to know what normal is before they start to unpack disorders of communication or disorders of swallowing and what we're going to do about that. So in their undergraduate degree, we teach them normal language development. We teach them about hearing, the impact of hearing loss on communication. 
the role of audiologists and speech pathologists and helping people reach their full potential for communication. We teach them about anatomy and the way that the brain works for um, speech and thought. And we just spend a good bit of time, four years actually, teaching them about normal. And most students who finish this this undergraduate degree in CSD will go on to graduate school in either speech language pathology or audiology. So how, this has got to be really important for early learning, specifically for children, correct? Correct. If you let them get behind where, you know, where they're just starting at, they're behind for the rest of the way. Is it not true? That is so true. Early intervention and getting ahead on diagnosing and treating any disorders of communication is really important for a child's success in school later on. So you'll find many, many speech pathologists working in early intervention settings where we can find and start treating those problems soon. And of course, Arkansas screens, all states screen a newborn's hearing before they leave the hospital because we recognize the impact of hearing loss on the development of language and the development of speech. So newborns in the state of Arkansas will all have their hearing screened before they leave the hospital. Okay, so recognizing, go ahead, just recognizing that importance of being able to hear. Right. Understood. When the moms or these new moms are in the hospital, they've just given birth. What might they see somebody doing to be testing uh, the hearing ability of a newborn? Oh, yeah. Well, the usually the audiologists will come get the newborn or they'll bring a piece of equipment into the hospital room. It's called an otoacoustic emissions test. And it, it just looks like a little... Um, ear probe that will go in the newborn's ear. The baby doesn't have to do anything. Obviously, they're a newborn, so they can't raise their hand when they hear the sound. And right. it will test the the ear's reaction to the sound that goes in the ear. So it's simple, painless, and gives the mom peace of mind immediately that she knows her baby is hearing. And if the baby doesn't pass that early newborn hearing screening, it's most often due to fluid in the ear, not really to hearing loss, but it clues the pediatrician and the mom into the fact that that's something that's going to need to be followed up on in the next couple of weeks. Okay, and so if a child is determined that they are not able to hear, that opens up a whole range of things because if you can't hear, your speech is going to be seriously affected. True. That is true. We learn to we learn to speak by listening to other people speak. So if a child is not getting that input or even if that input is diminished, the child isn't deaf, but they're not hearing well, then speech and language is definitely going to be affected. So that child um, would would get fitted for hearing aids very early. So so brand new little ones can get fitted with hearing aids to help them get that um, sound information coming into their into their little brains very early on in the first months of life. Yeah, when people think about uh, speech pathology, uh, they think a lot about uh, people who can't make the proper sounds. 
to speak and uh, as far as taking a little further, people who stutter uh, have a pathology. I mean, isn't that what most people think that you're all going to be doing? I think that's true. When when people hear I'm a speech pathologist or a speech therapist, that's what they think my job is, is that I work in a school and I work with kiddos that don't make their sounds right. And um, I've never worked in a, in a public school setting doing that. I've done lots of other things in my wow. career, but I've never done that. And that's what most people think a speech pathologist does. But my background has been um, in the medical side of things. So I work um, in hospitals. Before I worked at Harding, I would work um, in the hospital. I worked with folks who were recovering immediately from a stroke Mm -hmm. or people who had a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease because a lot of times when folks have Parkinson's disease, they speak really softly and their their voice doesn't carry like it used to. People have a hard time understanding them. So that's the role of the speech pathologist to to work on improving communication. So anytime someone has trouble communicating, the person that you go to is the speech pathologist. Also, swallowing is a big part of speech pathology. And swallowing is something that everyone takes for granted until they can't do it. And then you think, uh, who helps me swallow now? Who's going to help me eat? And that, again, would be speech pathology. But very few people realize that. Yeah, I'm looking here, and it uh, there's a part of this uh, paragraph says currently speech language pathologists are heavily involved in helping COVID patients recover from long intubation times and the cognitive changes that seem to accompany that diagnosis. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So if you've watched the news, one of the things that that we talk about on the news all the time are the patients that are intubated. So when someone is having trouble breathing and they need a machine to help them breathe, often they will be intubated, which is where a plastic pipe goes in the patient's mouth and down through their vocal cords to get to their lungs to support them in breathing and staying alive while they fight this this illness. So that uh, pipe is directly between the vocal cords and sometimes for a really long time. So that can do some damage to those vocal cords and also their while the patient is on the ventilator, they're not able to eat and they're not able to swallow. And obviously they're not talking and they're probably sedated. Mm-hmm. And when that goes on and on and on and patients recover, their respiratory system recovers, they're able to breathe on their own. The breathing tube comes out. All of those structures don't go back to normal immediately. They're weak, they're tired, they haven't been used, and so the speech pathologists are playing very important frontline roles in rehabilitating the muscles for speaking and swallowing, and also this brain fog that people complain about after recovering from COVID. It's just a a slowness of thinking and a mental fatigue and that's another part of the job of a speech pathologist is to help with all kinds of thinking problems so we're finding ourselves as a profession um, just right there in the middle of this pandemic as we work with these patients to get them back 
to where they were before they got sick. Very interesting. Had not heard about uh, you all working with uh, COVID patients. Melanie Meeker is our guest, Department Chair for Communication Sciences and Disorders at Harding University. Uh, she's going to be with us for the rest of this half hour. If you got a question, 8230965 is the number. When we come back, uh, let's find out what degrees are offered at Harding. Uh, they can tell us more about what a speech pathology assistant is. So we'll get to all that when we return here on the Dave Ellswick Show. I need to talk to you about PI Roofing. PI Roofing stands ready uh, to keep, uh, you know, uh, the social distancing, wearing a mask, all of that uh, going when they come out to your home to fix your roof. I just had them out here at my house on Monday, I had a, a small problem. Uh, was a piece of uh, plywood had gone bad, so they had to take the shingles off, the felt off, tear out the plywood, replace it, replace the felt, replace the shingles, and uh, you know, getting the same colored shingles that I had on my. Uh, uh, roof found out that those shingles are going to go out of style next year, and uh, we've taken pictures of the roof as well. And it looks like I'll probably need a new roof uh, sometime next year. But PI Roofing can do all of that for you without you going into their shop or them coming into your house. All you have to do is call them 707 3551. 707 3551 or piroofing.com. Understand, they don't have to come in to your home. You don't have to get, you know, within six foot of them. Uh, you, you can do all your business over the phone or over the Internet. You'll be very safe while they do their business to keep you safe in your home because your, your roof is your final defense against all of the elements of nature. So keep that in mind, piroofing.com. All right, we continue, and we're uh, talking with our guest from Harding University, and uh, that is Melanie Meeker. She is the department chair for communication sciences and disorders. Uh, we went through a lot of the things that you all do that are in uh, communication sciences and disorders. What, do, what does the average student now need to do to get a degree uh, in this uh, from Harding University? That is a great question. We have about 150 students right now in our undergraduate program. They are earning that four-year traditional bachelor's degree that we talked about. And then after graduation, students who want to be speech pathologists will go on for a two-year graduate degree in speech-language pathology. And students who want to be audiologists, audiologists are really important for hearing and disorders of balance, they're going to do a four-year clinical doctorate program. So we do not have an audiology program at Harding, but we do have a master's program in speech-language pathology. So a student can come to Harding and finish their four-year bachelor's, a two-year master's degree, and then every single one of our students who have um, come through the program in recent years have passed their licensure exam and gone on to get jobs. So we have we feel really great about their ability to enter a, a strong job market and uh, go to work, whether they're in a hospital or a school or nursing facility. 
So that's the that's the the traditional path for um, a student going to be that's going to be a speech pathologist. Now, here in about three weeks, when school starts, we will offer the first fast track in the state of Arkansas. So, okay. highly qualified students can come and they can finish that bachelor's degree in three years instead of four, and then immediately start on their master's degree. So they'll do the the prerequisite coursework in three years start immediately on the master's degree, and at the end of five years instead of six, they will have earned their bachelor's and their master's degree. So they're able to get in and get out a little bit quicker. It costs them less money and tuition, and they can get into the job market a year quicker. And that's great news. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, so, that's always great news if you can save money. So let me ask this question of you, Melanie. What about the student? They've already got their degree. They're looking to go into advanced study of what you have. Uh, but perhaps they didn't take some of the classes you all would want them to take. But in their work history, you see that they have been doing those things. Can they get a work history kind of credit for uh, those those classes? No, that's not an option in speech pathology. So, But we do have people come to our master's program quite often from other backgrounds. Lots of folks come to speech pathology from education or um, a foreign language background is really powerful in speech pathology. So we have students all the time that did not come through the traditional route, and we actually love that. So if a student wanted to to come to speech pathology from a little bit later in life or from a different job, a different place in the job market, that would be fantastic. They take some classes um, that help them get ready for graduate school. We call those leveling classes, and those are on our website if anyone was interested, which is harding.edu backslash CSD. If they click on graduate program, you can find those leveling classes there. So a student doesn't need to go back and get an entire new bachelor's degree. They just do some some coursework that gets them ready for graduate school. They apply for graduate school. And then if accepted, they can go on into that master's program. All right. Last question for you. We've got three minutes, and that is that you all have a speech clinic on campus. Uh, a lot of campuses don't have that. That's a, a very strong indication that uh, you want people not only to be book learned, to be actually able to handle this in real life. Absolutely. So we treat about 100 people a semester in our speech clinic. It is free, and it always has been free. So um, we have toddlers and adolescents and adults that get services in our speech clinic, and our students are providing the therapy, and our faculty are providing the supervision. So if you had a listener who needed speech therapy services but maybe didn't have insurance or the insurance had maxed out and they needed those services, the speech clinic at Harding is a good resource for Central Arkansas. Okay, and they go to the same place uh, if they're interested on the Internet, harding.edu backslash CSD. You're going to be the first, not the the first campus in Arkansas, but one of the first of 27 programs in the U.S. to uh, train uh, speech-language pathology assistants 
and you're excited that you're going to be able to offer this first one in uh, Arkansas. So, again, it's harding.edu backslash CSD. Yes. Okay. Melanie, thanks for your time. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you for having me. I've been, I've been really impressed over the months that we've been having uh, folks from Harding stop by. You all are really sitting on the cutting edge as a university uh, out there, in, in not only in Arkansas, but in America in general. We think some great things are happening up here in White County. Well, we appreciate you. Thank you very much. You're a, a, a kind of a hidden jewel right now. I'm kind of <laughs> keeping that from being hidden as much as, as it has been. But thank you very much for being with us today. Again, that was we Melanie that. Melanie Meeker's department chair for communication services and disorders at Harding University. And if you're looking for that help through their uh, speech clinic, again, that's harding.edu. Uh, Backward slash CSD. All right. Uh, you can also uh, go to CSD at harding.edu. All right. Coming up here uh, in just moments, Rush will be with us, who, by the way, went through some of that speech pathology uh, when he lost his hearing uh, several years back. And he's got those cochlear implants he had to learn how to speak again and i'm sure he could speak uh, very very strongly about how speech pathology helped him out but right now let's find out what l rushbow the big fuzzball has for us today here on the dave ellswick show 101.1 fm uh the answer and then i'll be back with more of the show after the break that we're getting ready to have all right, we have another guest coming up after 8 o'clock dealing with mail-in ballots. I want to talk more about that so that you are well familiar with it and are educated about it so that you know that it's not what we want to do. Uh, the Daily Wire today uh, put out a, a, a article about uh, Joe Biden, and he's calling again for an assault gun ban, an assault gun ban. And let's just hear what he has to say here. The story, presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden renewed his push for banning semi-automatic firearms that he termed weapons of war. Now, let's understand something right off the bat. Just because a, uh, a, a rifle is semi-automatic, which means you can fire it each time that you pull uh, the trigger, that there's not a bolt that you've got to pull out and push the shell, the next shell in, and uh, uh, load the chamber again. Uh, he uh, calls them weapons of war. They're anything but weapons of war. Weapons of war allow you to shoot one time each time uh, that you uh, pull the trigger and multiple times from a clip uh, that you have loaded into uh, the rifle or handgun. Now, when he says weapons of war and he ties it to, uh, you know, semi-automatic guns, he's moving beyond uh, the few guns that... uh, the Democratic Party 
with uh, our illustrious senators that were from California uh, that they swept away uh, during the ban uh, to where you cannot even buy, uh, you know, a a 308 or, uh, uh, pardon me, a 380, buy a 40 cal, 44, 45, 1911, if they can shoot a bullet every time you pull the trigger. That's semi-automatic. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying that that is a weapon of war. He made this uh, this uh, statement uh, yesterday, despite the fact that Americans are buying guns in record numbers after months of violent rioting, surges in violent crime in Democrat-controlled cities and calls from Democrats to defund the police. Quote, weapons of war have no place in our communities, he tweeted. When I was senator, I took on the NRA and secured a 10-year ban on assault weapons. And as president, I'll ban these weapons again. Bush, uh, Biden has pushed far left positions on gun control. He's called for banning semi-automatic firearms and clips that have multiple bullets in them, which would effectively ban the overwhelming majority of handguns, all semi-automatic shotguns and rifles and many hunting rifles, which use magazines. Biden has often often made remarks that indicate that he does not understand firearms, including claims that, quote, rational gun policy includes things like banning 50 clips in a weapon, a statement that does not make any mistake, uh, make any sense because uh, a regular semi-automatic uh, weapon doesn't have a clip that holds 50 bullets in it. Biden has dismissed heroic acts by citizens who stopped mass shootings by claiming that they should not have had the specific gun that they used to stop the shooting. Biden attacked uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott last year for signing a bill into law that allowed churchgoers to carry firearms with them to church. Uh, The Daily Wire highlighted Biden's views on the Second Amendment in a profile piece all the way back in last September. So let me just read that to you. Biden was a leading proponent and sponsor of the federal assault weapons ban, a subset of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. Throughout his career, he has generally been supportive of curtailing Second Amendment rights. Biden has also supported mandating five-day waiting periods for gun purchases, as well as closing the alleged, and you see air quotes here in this, gun show loophole. No such thing, but gun show loophole. Uh, Biden supports a ban on the undefinable subclass of firearms referred to as so-called assault weapons a line of thought that, if taken to its logical conclusion, would uh, lead to the banning of all semi-automatic firearms in America. Now, the NRA has responded to Biden by writing on Twitter, quote, clearly Joe didn't write this tweet. The complete sentences give it away. Joe and his supporters fear-monger using words like assault weapon, 
to describe America's most popular home defensive weapon. That is the AR-15 or AR-14 to Joe. Joe will say it real slow. Come and take it. The gun ban pushed by Biden comes as violent riots have broken out in numerous Democratic-controlled cities across the U.S. in recent months, and those include Portland, Minneapolis, New York, Atlanta, Chicago, Austin, Seattle, Richmond, Washington, D.C., and others. So numerous Democrats across the U.S. have also pushed defund the police movements in an attempt to placate rioters. And I'm going to talk about that uh, when I come back, because the lady, uh, one of the ladies, uh, co-founders of Black Lives Matter, uh, appeared before the DNC just uh, uh, two days ago and said, hey, here's what we want you to do. Uh, we want to get rid of the assault weapons. We want to defund the police. And she laid out the whole litany of things that this Marxist leftist group uh, stands for. And the DNC did nothing. They are sitting there at times and saying they agree with what Black Lives Matter says, but they've done nothing to say it needs to be put into law. All right, about quarter till eight now here on uh, the Dave Ellswick Show. Just know that plenty of Democrats own guns. Many of them, the blue-collar Democrats who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and whom Joe Biden hopes to woo back, are not going to be wooed back if you take a hardland stance against semi-automatic weapons. All right, we've got more coming your way in a few moments. Let's take a break. Uh, we'll do that. Then I've got more for you here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, Tom Cotton back on uh, the news front again. Uh, he was on uh, uh, Mornings with Maria yesterday on Fox Business Network talking about that the United States needs to fight back harder against the Chinese Communist Party's intellectual uh, property theft and their attempts to influence things in the United States by criminalizing uh, taking money from China. Now, you may be aware, you've been paying some attention, and you've heard uh, what's going on about this uh, app, TikTok. And uh, uh, the president is wanting it to be sold to an American company, and then the American company to uh, not take any uh, personal information from it. All of you who have been on TikTok here uh, recently, you may not understand or know this. You may be ignorant of the fact that uh, TikTok has been not only taking adult information and storing it and selling it, but they're taking the information of minors and storing it and uh, selling it. So they've gone a lot further than other companies have. And what they're doing as far as taking minors' in, uh, in information is against the law. Said uh, Cotton yesterday, the Chinese Communist Party continues its campaign of intellectual property theft and forced technology transfer. 
it is past time for us to insist that this stop. The Trump administration and the president have been doing that in various ways. I've got legislation that would take more steps as well. So, for instance, criminalizing the payment of money to American professors and academics who are on the payroll of the Chinese Communist Party or their state-owned enterprises. Now, understand that's something that's going on right here in our own backyard. You've seen the stories, I'm sure, of uh, the uh, professors up there at U of A, a couple of them, that are being uh, indicted because they're taking money from uh, the CHICOMs. And right now, you can only prosecute those cases for things like wire fraud or lying on federal documents. It's the act of accepting the Chinese money itself that's going to have to be criminalized, says Cotton. There are other steps that we can take as well to stand up for American companies that shouldn't have to transfer their intellectual property to Chinese partners simply as a condition of doing businesses with Chinese consumers. Let me give you an example. You have a business. Uh, It's a good business. Maybe you're one of the few uh, businesses that are on the cusp of a new way of doing business. And so you want to go and do business in China. If you go to China, you may run into the situation where the Chinese government says you have to allow them access to all of your intellectual property. And what the Chinese government or these Chinese uh, firms do that are started up off of your company is they steal the proprietary uh, information of what makes your company special. So somewhere along the line, uh, you know, five, eight years down the line, uh, they've got a perfectly running uh, company that's just like yours. And they tell you, you're not welcome in China anymore. And they have a mirror image company in their company, in their country, taking over uh, what it is that uh, uh, you do. Cotton's remarks come after he called for changing the law last week in response to news that, what, a former University of Arkansas professor with ties to China was indicted on fraud charges. Said uh, Cotton, federal law enforcement deserves great credit for putting together a very strong case against alleged Chinese agent Simon Ang, Cotton said. But Chinese spies aren't ordinary fraudsters. They're working for a foreign adversary, in this case, the Chinese government. We ought to change the law so that foreign agents in the future are held accountable not only for wire fraud, but for taking money from the Chinese Communist Party in the first place. The real crime in these cases Cotton also proposed an amendment this week to block Chinese companies from receiving any uh, COVID-19 loan uh, loan money. The amendment comes after the New York Times reported last week, quote, 
according to a review of publicly available loan data by the strategy consulting firm Horizon Advisory, $192 million to $419 million has gone to more than 125 companies that Chinese entities own or invest in. Many of the loans were quite sizable. At least 32 Chinese companies received loans worth more than $1 million, with those totaling as much as $180 million. So they're using our own practices against us. The report acknowledges that the participation of these companies in the lending program most likely saved an unspecified number of jobs, perhaps based in the United States, but it also suggests that many of the businesses probably had access to other forms of capital from public or private markets to support their American operations. The uh, Treasury Department has estimated that the overall program has kept 50 million workers employed in the United States. Now, this is dangerous. Think about how dangerous this is, that you can, as a, as a communist uh, uh, entity, keep access to American technology by saying, but look, we hire some American workers. Cotton's office released a statement saying that the senator introduced an amendment to the HEALS Act that would prohibit any funds in the HEALS Act or Residual Cares Act funds from uh, supporting any entity that is under uh, Chinese ownership, control, or influence. The legislation also mandates that the Secretary of the Treasury claw back uh, CARES Act funds provided to Chinese firms. Quote, the amendment comes in response to reports that Chinese-owned companies received PPP funding from the CARES Act passed earlier this year. So uh, the, the senator, junior senator here from uh, Arkansas, is, is making a good case that you cannot do business kind of like as usual uh, that you would do with an American firm. You can't do that with a, you know, a Chicom, a Chinese communist company. Uh, we're talking about companies that you, there's not as much distance as a slip of paper between the Chinese government and the company and the way that it works. So uh, keep that in mind. Cotton's doing a good job of uh, keeping that in front of people, and I really am glad that uh, he is he is stepping forth and and doing this. Because I'll be honest with you, most of us that are listening to it right now, I'm interested in. I've been talking about uh, Chicom's presence on our universities now for months, uh, and and questioning our. Uh, uh, congressional staff about it, but most people, most of you out there, are more interested in how the COVID-19 is affecting uh, your job and your family. And as I have said before, and I will now say again, you cannot allow 
your the information that you're paying attention to only be in small areas. You have got to keep your eye on the ball because the Chinese government is very, very dangerous. The Japanese just the other day made the statement that the government that they're worried the most about is uh, the Chinese government. And right after that comes North Korea. Now, that's two. It's a couple of peas in the pod right there. But uh, uh, America is looking to cut back our amount of money that we spend over in Japan for their protection. We've been protecting their nation ever since uh, the dropping of the atomic bomb uh, 75 years ago uh, on Hiroshima. Uh, and they're celebrating or remembering that uh, today. Completely different ways of seeing it, I'm sure, between the American and the Japanese people. But here's the bottom line. They want to know how much they're going to be able to protect themselves uh, because China's got nukes and uh, North Korea's working on nukes. And uh, Japan says, I don't have nukes yet, but it's uh, pretty well known that if they uh, put their nose to the grindstone, they could have them in short order. Oh, okay, enough of talking about national politics. We'll come back and talk about uh, national pol- uh, international politics. We'll come back and talk about national politics and write in voting. We want to do that with you here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Still an hour to go. Uh, you'll hear it at 6 o'clock right here at 101.1 FM, The Answer. get on uh, here with six o'clock hour of the Dave Ellswick show. If you're uh, listening on, of course, our uh, uh, page on uh, Facebook, you're listening to this in real time, or you could be listening on the podcast. I don't know. Anyway, you're listening. You're going to get a good interview here that you want to hear. Boris Epstein, who is Trump uh, campaign senior advisor and constitutional lawyer, is joining with me today because, look, I've heard so much dealing with the whole mail-in voting thing. And, Boris, it's it's all Greek to me, okay, about what they're trying to do. Can you help me and my listeners to understand exactly what the Democratic Party is trying to do? Well, sure. I'll break it down very simply. What the Democrats want to do is send universal mail ballots to every voter, verified, unverified, in this country. That's what they want to do. That's what they're trying to do in Nevada, which is what the lawsuit by the Trump campaigns, by President Trump and the Trump campaign is all about. 
That is what they want to do. They want to circumvent the usual process of voting, which does include absentee voting, and put in universal mail voting, that all voting will be handled by mail. Okay. So why is this so important to the Democrats? Do they, I mean, I, we've heard about harvesting uh, ballots and all kinds of stuff. I mean, try to break this down because there seems to be so many pieces to this. The reason it's important is because then they can pick and choose where they want to have, where they can really push people to vote, who to vote for. So that's what ballot harvesting is, right? Ballot harvesting is is actually proactively going and trying to get ballots and, and sending them in, et cetera, et cetera. The overall problem is that mail voting is just fraught with fraud. It's You look at Patterson, New Jersey, 20% of ballots invalidated because of fraud. Uh, you look at New York, you had two congressional districts which have been a mess and they sort of got certified this week which means that they sort of got the final answer on who won but really it does not appear to be done yet and that's months in the making now, you look at california where yeah, thousands of ballots have been lost so you look all over the country and mail voting has been a disaster so they're doing this at the last moment because they feel this is the only way that they can beat Donald Trump. That, that sure is it. That's what the Democrats want to get to power anyway, anyhow. They know that the president is leading this country through a great economic recovery. Even this morning, the jobless claims were much, much less for the week than they were expected by about 20, 25 percent. This president is the leader we need in this war against the invisible enemy. He's the one that's put in the fair trade deals, got rid of NAFTA. He's the one that's standing up for American manufacturing. And Joe Biden is an obvious mess. I mean, anybody who's seen even the most recent clips of him referring to a black reporter as a cocaine junkie, asking him if he was a cocaine junkie, and totally failing to, to come off as, forget credible, but even put together. So Biden is a mess. President Trump is leading us right now through this war with the invisible enemy. And the Democrats are trying to steal this election with mail voting. Okay, so here's my thing. Even if you don't ask for a, uh, a ballot in the states of California, D.C., Vermont, and Nevada, uh, with the changes that they're trying to make right now, everybody who can vote will get a ballot whether they want one or not. Is that correct? That's what they want to do. Correct. Everybody would get a ballot, and then there would be a, a disparate con- a collection of those ballots. Who knows what happens with them? Some is a ruling that you don't need a postmark on the ballot. Oh Some are ruling that you don't, you don't need a signature on the ballot, that a defective ballot without a signature is still a ballot. I mean, could you imagine? That means that it, somebody could, could go ahead and mail in 10 ballots. And there have been instances of people getting several ballots in their homes. You know, I thought we were getting so, better and getting better at this, and uh, because I grew up outside of Chicago, and I can tell you about ballot stuffing. Oh yes, I tell you all about that, and that's what it sounds like to me. They want to go back to, you know, you find out you lose, you're losing by, uh, let's say, three thousand uh, votes. You go and and you you, you go out and create. 3,500 new ballots that close that gap and uh, let you get in front of the challenger or whatever. Mail balloting is 
is a, is a problem. It's a disaster. It's ripe with fraud. And it is something that the Democrats are using to try, 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 try to get to power. But President Trump and the campaign are, are going to do everything possible, to, including to the courts, to not allow that to happen, to stand up for the American Constitution, for the American way of voting. A, a free and fair election is the pillar of this country. All right. So what can my listener do? Because I'm pretty sure most of the people who listen to this show are conservative. How do we keep this from happening in Arkansas? What you have to do is talk to all your elected officials and make sure this doesn't happen. I mean, I doubt, you know, the great leadership of the state of Arkansas, I trust that that they are not going to be pushing this forward. But it, you know, not just within Arkansas, but around the country, your listeners should be making it loud and clear that they are for legitimate elections. Sure, absentee balloting is fine, but universal mail-in balloting, universal mail-in voting is not. So post on social media, write letters, make phone calls, make your voice heard that you want legitimate elections in this country. Okay, last question for you, Boris, and that is uh, you guys go up in front of these judges. What are you asking the judges to do to throw out, for instance, out in uh, the implementation of Assembly Bill 4, AB4 uh, in Nevada or what? Uh, the, the immediate ask, correct, is to invalidate these new laws that are being passed, you know, at, at midnight in some cases almost, fly-by-night laws that are trying to institute mail, all-male voting. That's, that's the focus. And that's what we're asking the, the courts to do. And, and we're confident in our argument and that we will be able to be successful and preserve legitimate voting in this country. Boris Epstein, thanks so much. Uh, he's the Trump campaign senior advisor and constitutional lawyer. Boris, thanks for uh, giving this so that at least it's not just looking at mud. We can understand what is going on now. Thank you. My pleasure. Great talking to you. Have a great day. Thank you. Same to you. All right. So Boris uh, joining us today. Uh, this is serious, folks. Uh, it, it does sound like to me, and I can tell you all about uh, ballot cheating uh, growing up outside of Chicago. It, it, and it's happened here in Arkansas as well. When they're counting uh, the uh, the mail-in ballots, like the uh, if you got right now, you, you got a mail-in ballot, and uh, you find out that after all, all the count is done, you're a couple of thousand votes shy uh, for the guy that they want in that office. Uh, they suddenly come up with a box of an extra 2,700 or even 2,001. I've seen it be that razor thin uh, to uh, put somebody over the top. Something to keep thinking about. You hear anybody say, yeah, write in ballots, no big deal. Understand, this is not like an absentee ballot. Absentee ballot, you got to ask for. you got to, you know, show them your signature. You're going to prove somewhat whom you are. Uh, when you come to these kind of ballots, all they do is they send it out to who is on the, uh, the voting register. If they're a voting age, they get a ballot. And uh, as you heard him say, in some states, it doesn't even have to have your signature on it. I want you to think about that for a moment. Yeah, no signature on it. 
which means it, it shows up and it says uh, Dave Ellswick uh, is voting for uh, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, and I didn't vote for Joe Biden. I voted for Donald Trump. Well, they'll say, well, here's the ballot. It says that uh, we're voting, he's voting for, uh, for Biden. And they end up, uh, you know, casting my vote for Biden. I mean, the, the whole thing stinks. The whole thing reeks of looking for a way of getting around uh, how votes are tabulated and to make sure that uh, we can make sure that they're true votes. This is for breaking the law. That's all I can tell you. It's the way I see it. Like I said, I grew up with it. I hope that we're not going to see it come back again. We pretty much got it cleared up. Now it looks like they're trying to bring it back in spades. Uh, 13 after 8, let's get a break in here on the Dave Ellswick Show. With you, Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, A real disturbing trend is starting to show itself here in the United States. And now, I don't know if you've heard about this or not, Heidi. I, I, this has just been brought to my attention in the last week. A Republican congressman formally asked the Department of Justice on Wednesday to investigate the recent spike of vandalism against Catholic churches and religious icons in the U.S. Uh, Representative Chuck Fleischman of Tennessee sent a letter to uh, Attorney General William Barr urging the DOJ to continue to protect religious freedom and combat religious dis- discrimination in the U.S. Uh, he said in uh, his uh, article or this letter that he sent uh, to the uh, uh, AG Let me get back to the story here. I zipped over to check something out and back to it now. Uh, He said in this this letter, he urged them to combat religious discrimination. Today I sent a letter to the AG urging the DOJ to protect religious freedom and combat religious discrimination in the U.S. My letter comes after numerous reports of vandalism at Catholic churches across the nation, including an incident in Chattanooga, uh, Fleischman tweeted. He went on, attached to his tweet was the letter, which reads in part, since June, there have been nearly a dozen reported attacks on uh, Catholic churches around the nation. These disturbing attacks range from arson to a beheading of a statue of the Virgin Mary. I'm finding these attacks to be a disturbing trend happening in multiple areas across the nation, including within my own congressional district. In times of uncertainty, we naturally turn to religion for comfort and peace, something many Americans are seeking as we combat COVID-19. But these attacks add another level of distress for many folks across our nation. End of letter. Uh, Freshman uh, or Fleischman concluded uh, by uh, commending the DOJ's commitment under Barr's leadership 
to combating religious discrimination. Now, he also expanded his views to the Washington Examiner, saying, quote, these people who would desecrate any house of worship, whether it is a Catholic church or any other house of worship, need to know that it won't be tolerated. I would like to have a recognition that this problem exists, that it persists, and sadly it is not isolated to one city or just one state. He concluded his letter uh, to DOJ. I think it needs to be looked at very carefully and addressed for the danger uh, that it is. Amid the vandalism of historical statues that has taken place this summer in the wake of George Floyd's death, houses of worship have not been spared. At the Daily Wire, reported on July 13th, at least four Catholic churches in four states were vandalized over the weekend in a string of attacks that have authorities wondering whether religious icons and statues are next to be targeted by the anti-racism and anti-fascist protesters. Among those attacked uh, during that weekend, a statue of the Virgin Mary at St. Uh, uh, Stephen Parish in Chattanooga, Tennessee. According to the bishop there, uh, uh, they, they had the head cut off of, of uh, Mary. Uh, Fleischman responded to uh, Stika, tweeting, This is a disturbing attack on Catholicism and religion in general. Sadly, it is among a series of attacks on Catholic churches that have happened in recent days. I hope that the perpetrators will be brought to justice, but I also pray that they will find their way to God as well. Senator Ted Cruz back in April sent a similar letter to Barr, urging him to remain vigilant against potential religious discrimination in New York City, especially instances of anti-Semitism after Mayor de Blasio personally helped to disperse a Hasidic funeral in Brooklyn for the sake of social distancing. And if you have a church now in California and you uh, go out there with your church and decide you're going to still have services, the governor of California has said uh, it is within their right to cut off your water service, your electric service, and uh, any kind of services that they deem are necessary. And uh, I think uh, we're getting into a very uh, disturbing trend here in America where where a, a church wants to meet and the government says, no, we don't think you should. I mean, let's go back. Let's go to this Los Angeles uh, story with you, and let me bring it up to you. Here's what they say in it: Los Angeles homeowners. Okay, now this is homeowners first, who violate the city's COVID-19 related safety measures, may find themselves on the receiving end of some unwelcome consequences. During a press conference yesterday. Uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti authorized the city to shut off power and water to properties 
including houses and businesses that are in violation of gathering regulations as a means to shut these places down permanently. By turning off that power, shutting off that water, we feel we can close these places down, which usually are not one-time offenders, but multiple offenders. That's what Garcetti had to say. Uh, He went on to talk about, he noted that local law enforcement officers are having a hard time dealing with uh, gatherings where there are hundreds of people who are breaking the law. We know we can do this, Garcetti said, responding to a question about the measure's legality. The authorization comes as the state battles a recent surge in confirmed cases. According to the mayor's office, Los Angeles had nearly 198,000 cases as of Wednesday, as well as 4,800 fatalities. Other states are having similar issues as local leaders ask residents to adhere to distancing guidelines. And it goes into talk about uh, Kumo has authorized local authorities to revoke uh, the business license of, ex- of establishments with environments in violation. It seems to me the major problem that we got here is governments that are totally ignoring uh, the opportunities uh, that a citizen has uh, to be able to have due process. Uh, You should not be able to cut somebody's water off or their electricity off or tell them they can't meet uh, without some kind of appearance uh, uh, before a judge. Uh, Says uh, the mayor, we continue to see situations that are just not intelligent and local governments have to crack down on these. It doesn't matter whether they're in California, New York, or Long Island, or upstate New York. We've got to deal with this. Well, I say you can deal with it, but you have to deal with it in such a way that you are uh, staying with uh, the Constitution of the United States. These people must have due process. All right, let's take another break, and we'll come back uh, as we continue on the Dave Ellswick Show. The left-wing Pen America, that's a left-wing kind of like magazine on the Internet, has repeatedly attacked President Donald Trump as a menace to free speech. Now the elite cultural organization is finding itself in the awkward position of agreeing with the president on the issue of Hollywood's cozying relationship uh, with China's communist regime, which is suppressing the freedom of expression around the world. So now here's the left saying, you know, maybe we've got a friend in the right who is showing to us that the people who are on the far left don't care who they target. They're targeting everyone. They published a scathing report yesterday 
in which it said that Beijing is creating a climate of self-censorship in Hollywood, with studios routinely making compromises on free expression by changing the content of their movies that are intended for both American and foreign audiences. These concessions to the power of the Chinese market have happened mostly quietly with little attention and often with uh, little debate. But steadily a new set of mores has taken hold in Hollywood uh, in which appeasing the Chinese government investors and gatekeepers has simply become a way of doing business, the study says. We have developed this report on Beijing's influence over Hollywood because we believe this influence cannot be ethically decoupled from the Chinese government's practices of suppressing freedom of expression in China. Of course it can't. Look, uh, the Chinese government is a Chinese government no matter what what form it morphs into, it plays by the rules of the Chinese government. The Trump administration has recently hammered Hollywood for its regular deference to China's censors. Both Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Attorney General Barr have spoken publicly about how the major Hollywood studios are sacrificing freedom of artistic expression in order to gain access to the Chinese market. Keep in mind how big the Chinese market is. Billions of people, lots of money uh, would come out of the Chinese market. Every year at the Academy Awards, Americans are lectured about how this country falls short of Hollywood's ideas of social justice. But Hollywood now regularly censors its own movies to appease the Chinese Communist Party, the world's most powerful violator of human rights. Barr said during a speech last month, and you've heard us play it before, uh, at the Gerald Ford Presidential Museum in Michigan, He spoke out about this and how dangerous this was. Senator Ted Cruz has proposed a law that would strip any Hollywood movie of federal assistance if it engages in censorship to please China. Hollywood movies have repeatedly sought to placate China by idealizing the country or by removing story elements that Beijing could find offensive. Okay, so now you're hearing all this. You say, okay, give me, give me some uh, uh, examples, all right? The big disaster epic 2012 portrayed the Chinese government at, as humanity's literal, literal saviors. Alfonso Curran laid some love on the Chinese in gravity by inventing a spaceship, a space station that the Chinese do not have. While the book World War Z depicted the zombie plague as having begun at the hands of an incompetent and corrupt Chinese government, 
the movie moved the origin to North Korea. Transformers 2 set much of its actions in the gleaming, modern, and pristine city of Shanghai. There's, of course, no squander there. The upcoming Top Gun Maverick is so concerned. Listen closely to this. This may keep me from going to see the movie. The upcoming Top Gun Maverick is so concerned with offending its Chinese masters that Tom Cruise's iconic flight jacket was stripped of its Japanese and Taiwanese flags. Need I say more? I don't need to say any more about this. I mean, it's pretty uh, obvious uh, what's going on here. And it goes on and on and on and on. Because Hollywood, it's all about the Benjamins. Keep that in mind. It's all about the Benjamins. Pen America also pointed out Hollywood's hypocrisy in frequently criticizing Washington, but failing to do the same for Beijing. For instance... Quote, today Hollywood enjoys a reputation as a place uncowed by Washington and one that is often gleefully willing to speak truth to American political power. This reputation contrasts strangely but silently with Hollywood's increasing acceptance of the need to conform to Beijing's film dictates. Hollywood's addiction to China's box office dollars comes as uh, studios increasingly focus on tentpole releases, essentially blockbuster superhero movies and other big-budget action fi- titles. The price tags for these movies are so high that studios often turn a prop- can't turn a profit unless the movie is released in China, the world's second-largest movie market. And the report goes on to add that this increasingly need for access to Chinese film moviegoers coincides with Hollywood filmmakers increasingly normalized self-censorship. Again, they see they understand it so well, the government doesn't even have to do anything. They play this game and protect uh, the Chinese uh, wantonly look you hear you see these actors and actresses uh, jumping all over uh, our president uh, when he does something they don't like but you look at Hong Kong and uh, the people that are out there and they are uh, marching and wanting freedom and the Chinese government says no and the actors and actresses become strangely silent because they know where the butter on their toast is is spread. They know. They know that they need need those Chinese movie uh, goers. As the Chinese box office market continues to outpace ours, and as the relationship between Hollywood and Beijing becomes even more lopsided, The pressures on Hollywood studios to accede to CCP censorship will only increase. They will take a knee to the CHICOMs. I'm telling you, they're already doing it. 
The phenomena of self-censorship will presumably only worsen. That is why it is so important to have this conversation now before we acquiesce to Beijing's censorship uh, becoming even further normalized for uh, Hollywood filmmakers. But if you want to get a Chinese release, a movie must pass muster with the Chinese censors who limit the number of foreign titles every year in local cinemas. Pen America noted that the last time Hollywood made movies that were critical of China was 1997, which saw Martin Scorsese's Kundun, released by Disney, as well as the movies Seven Years in Tibet and Red Corner. The Walt Disney Company faced pressure from China over, over Kundun, Dunn's predict, uh, depiction of the Dalai Lama and China's invasion of Tibet. The pressure worked, prompting Disney to apologize. They made the wrong decision to go against the Chinese government, and they ended up having to uh, apologize. And in the end, it cost uh, the movie uh, producer uh, money. Pen America wants Hollywood Studios to pledge that the censored Chinese versions of their movies not become the default version of the films offered to global audiences. Understand, some of these movies that are released in China are edited in such a way that it does not cause any bad face for the Chinese government. But then they release the one that has some bad things about China to the rest of the world. What Pen America does not want to see is that it becomes the de facto movie that goes out to everybody. And they say if that's not possible, studios must commit to publicly sharing information on all censorship requests received by government regulators for their films. Wow. I got to say that makes me feel happy about Pan America. They understand what's happening. They understand the censorship that's going on. Doesn't mean that they're going to be in America's uh, pocket or they're going to say make American movies that are uh, full of uh, American, uh, you know, uh, uh, material that shows us to be great. They're saying to make sure that we show uh, people worldwide what the Chinese have uh, been doing. All right, let's get our break in, and then we'll have a final break uh, here on the Dave Ellswick Show, and we'll finish up here in, uh, in just a moment on the Dave Ellswick Show. Final segment of a Thursday edition of the Dave Ellswick Show, and, you know, it's important to keep in mind what is COVID-19 doing uh, to businesses? Well, Disney theme parks are reporting their losses due to the uh, coronavirus pandemic at $3.5 billion. Uh, their net income plummeted dramatically in the three-month period that ended in June. Why? Because they had to shutter their parks. All of them were closed, and all of those theatrical movie releases were postponed. I just saw here recently that Mulan 
is going to be uh, released on Disney uh, Plus. However, you will have to pay a premium charge to watch it. Still, its bottom line results were better than analysts expected. Wow, how much did they think they were going to lose? Although its revenue missed expectations uh, in this, Disney has soared to success with the breadth of its media and entertainment offerings, but now it's trying to recover after the COVID-19 pandemic plummeted uh, many of its businesses. It was hit by several months of its parks and stores being closed. All of their cruise ships were idle. Movie releases were postponed. And there was a halt in film and video production. For the quarter that ended June 27th, the company posted a loss of $4.84 billion or uh, a uh, $2.61 per share. So if you had Disney stock... You lost some money. Uh, right now, I can't buy Disney stocks. too high for me. Uh, they had a profit of last year of $0.79 cents a share. This time, they're losing 2.61. Adjusted to exclude one-time items such as restructuring costs, impairment charges, at net income came to $0.08 cents a share. So you made $0.08 cents on every share of your Disney stock. If you've got a lot of stock, that adds up to a lot of money. Analysts expect it. Uh, they expect it an adjusted loss of $0.64 cents per share. Revenue fell 42% to $11.7 billion. That missed uh, analysts' expectations of $12.3 billion. So it was good on that side of it. And Disney has now been opening its parks back up around the globe, but most were still shuttered during the company's fiscal third quarter. In May, it opened Disney Springs, a complex of shops, restaurants, and entertainment venues in Lake Buena Vista, Florida. Hong Kong Disneyland reopened in June but closed again after a month due to an outbreak in the city. It reopened Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom, Epic, and uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios in Orlando, Florida in July. Uh, Disney said closing its parks cost it $3.5 billion during the quarter. Three months, three and a half. Uh, The uh, streaming service Disney Plus continued to be a bright spot. Disney reported Disney Plus, which costs $7 a month, which I have. I don't know about you, but I took Disney Plus. Had 57.5 million paid subscribers as of June 27th. Multiply 57.5 by 7, and they're making some bank. There's no doubt about it. On a call with the uh, analyst, the CEO of Disney said that numbers... Reach, that number reached 60 and a half million as of Monday of this week. The service debuted in November in the U.S., rolled out to the U.K. and other parts of Europe last month. Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus combined reached over 100 million subscribers, the company said. Netflix, by contrast, 
has about 183 million subscribers, a base it has spent years building. It took them years. To, I mean, do you, how many of you remember Netflix when they sent you the discs in the ma- mail? You get three of them, and you watch the movies, and you send them back, and then you could ask for more discs. Now it's all streaming. Very interesting, to say the least, uh, what we have there. And then last but not least, this is kind of some good news for you. The U.S. weekly jobless claims unexpectedly fell to 1.19 million. That's the lowest level since the COVID-19 pandemic has started. Uh, so uh, you want to you want to keep keep in mind about this because it's it's important that you understand really seriously what's happening uh, here. It's not as bad as a lot of people are trying to uh, to say it is. Listen to what this story reports. New claims for unemployment benefits declined by 249,000 to only 1.186 million last week. That's according to the Department of Labor. Uh, this is the 20th consecutive week of initial claims above 1 million, but it was much better than expected. Economists had forecasted 1.4 new claims, million, a slight increase from the previous week. The prior week was revised up to uh, 1.4 million. Claims hit a record 6.8 million for the week of March 27th. Until two weeks ago, each subsequent week has seen claims decline. In last week's report, based on the previous week's labor market, claims actually rose. That was shown as a signal that the labor market could be stalling. Now it's changed again, means the labor market isn't stalling. The unexpected decline appears to indicate a subsequent strengthening at the end of July, despite many businesses and states rolling back or delaying reopening plans. Reports in August, including Friday's much-anticipated jobs report, for July will paint a clear picture of the health of the labor markets. Why the stock market today is a little bit tentative. It's down maybe a close to 100 points. Uh, they're waiting for tomorrow. Then finally, let me tell you that jobless claims can create a distorted picture of the labor market because they measure only job losses and not gains. Despite over 1 million new claims, continuing claims during the week ending July uh, 18 fell to 16 million, a decrease of 844,000 from the previous week's revised level. The previous week's figures were revised down by 67,000 from 17 million to 16.9 million, and those figures are reported with a week's lag, and that means things are getting better but not as fast as everybody would like, not as fast as I would like to see it. Uh, these Democrats that are in charge of some of the uh, big, big states in the country are dragging their feet, and they're dragging their feet because they think this is a way to beat Trump. Uh, because if, if they take the, they put their uh, foot on the accelerator, uh, it, the economy is going to take off. And they don't want that. They'd rather you suffer than for you to, to uh, prosper. 
a break. Until tomorrow, I'll see you soon. Again, right here on the Dave Ellsworth Show.